What's up, y'all? Welcome to another episode of BS Faith. My name is Louis Dooley, and if you don't know, BS stands for bumper sticker, and not what you may think. But welcome to another episode. I'm here with my brother Sam Key. What's up, Sam? What's shaking today? Not much. Not not much shaking. Oh, there's a lot shaking. For okay, sure. all right. What, what time did you get up this morning? Not. I I slept in today. It was okay. it was like six. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I normally get up uh, a couple hours earlier than that. Okay. But today is my birthday. Is it? Yeah. Man, today's I, the day. I apologize, man. <laughs> I, I I do, man. I feel like a big fool right now. Yeah. So happy birthday, bro. Yeah. Happy birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday okay, to you. Enough. Happy birthday to saying. Happy birthday to you. So probably one of the 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 biggest gifts that we were given today was the opportunity to have on our show Dr. Glenn Sunshine. And this is a dude who you admire. I do. I a do. Lot. So this is a gift. It's a gift. It's a it gift. A so tell gift. us about tell us about so, Glenn. So Dr. Glenn Sunshine, I met him through uh, his podcast. He's a, not a co-host, but I guess a co-host. There's three hosts on the on the show called The Theology Podcast with uh, C.R. Wiley and Tom Price and Dr. Glenn Sunshine. And I listen to that. It's my favorite. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and that's one of my favorite uh, for sure. But then that also got me into some of his writings, like his book Slaying Leviathan, which came out in 2020, I believe. 2020. And 2020 and and uh the reason you th- or the why you think the way you do is another uh one of his books but he's also involved with uh Chuck Colson and Prison Fellowship and Breakpoint he's a frequent con- contributor there too so i always love hearing from him i'm so excited uh for today and this opportunity to um speak with him and he graciously uh accepted this invitation yeah so welcome to our podcast Glenn Sunshine and he's well, a retired retired uh, uh, professor, a history professor. So, this is a a church uh, historian on our show today. Nice. So I want to I want to dive right in. I wanted to ask the question beforehand, but oh, but his new book that we're mainly talking about today. Yes, thirty two Christians who changed their world just came out. Fantastic. So that's going to be what we're going to be diving into. I got a into. burning question right yeah. now because I actually got a chance to meet Chuck Colson. Um, a number of years wow. ago, and he you didn't was tell me that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, I, I just met him. It's not like I yeah. spent days or weeks or months with him, but I did get a chance to meet him. And one quick story: I was incarcerated for over fifteen years in prison in the state of Missouri, and Prison Fellowship had a huge, 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 huge mm-hmm. impact in my life when I was incarcerated. And the the director in the state of Missouri actually just called me a couple of weeks ago and I talked to her. I'm wow. still in touch with her. And um, he was at Willow Creek Church for a prison and jail ministry thing. And he was speaking and he came up and was shaking hands. And I said, oh, man, no, Mr. Colson, it's a pleasure to meet you, man. Thank you so much. Your ministry has like shaped me and molded me in so many ways in my life as a Christian. And he asked me where I was incarcerated. I said, Missouri. And he said the lady's name. And I'm like, how in the world? Like, you got a director probably in every state, and if not every state, at least 30, Mm -hmm. maybe 40 states. And he remembered this lady's name. And that, to me, just, like, spoke to his his memory, Mm -hmm. his, like, affinity for people and love for people to remember them by name. And uh, that, that stood out to me. So you had an opportunity, like, you know Chuck Colson. And um, like, how did you how did you meet him? Well, when 
I lived in Connecticut. The church we went to was the one Jonathan Edwards attended when oh, he was wow. at Yale. Wow. <laughs> and uh, on the 300th anniversary of Edwards' birth, we put on a big conference and Chuck was invited there. Huh. Uh, I did a talk for it. Chuck got hold of the talk, listened to it, and sent me a letter asking me if I would like to collaborate on some projects with him. Wow. wow. And I mean, my mama didn't raise no dummies. Chuck Colson <laughs> asks you that, you say yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I started working with him in a program then called the Centurions Program, now the Colson Fellows. And I did a few other things with him over the years, too. Wow. Um, so I was working primarily on the worldview side of his ministry. I did a little bit of, of uh, work with the um, the prison side, mostly helping uh, in some cases to do a little training for the uh, for the volunteers um, or hmm. the staff who were working in in the prisons. Oh, okay, okay. But um, yeah, so that was that that was how that all happened. Man, Let me tell cool. you a quick story about Chuck. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I was teaching for the program, my kids would periodically come down to Washington with me to spend the weekend. Um, from the first time I introduced them to Chuck, he remembered their names. Mm. He always spoke into their lives every time wow. they came down. And several years later, my daughter was an intern at Prison Fellowship. And they brought all the interns from around the country to Washington to do some training and such. And the big event was they were going to meet Chuck Colson. <laughs> and so they're in the Colson guest house and Chuck walks in. Uh, all these interns are there. He sees Elizabeth and says, Elizabeth. And he holds out her, his arms and goes wow. over and gives her a big hug. Wow. Wow. Mm -mm -mm. I mean, he had an incredible memory for people. And an incredible heart for people, no matter who they were. Mm -hmm. He was a really impressive man on wow. all kinds of different levels. And that's great. Thanks for sharing that. Yep. So it just even like it makes me feel like I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, like, I wasn't like a one-off thing. Yeah. So and, and no, that's Chuck. And part of your uh, and part of the origin story of this book has to do with that Centurions program, right? Yeah, um, they had this habit of giving me titles for talks and then not telling me what the title was supposed to mean. <laughs> so they gave me the title Christians Who Changed okay. Their World. And I looked at it and I thought, all right, I know Chuck. He's thinking William Wilberforce. Yeah. That's his hero, mm. you know, or Martin Luther or Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King, people like that, that mm -hmm. the sort of household names. And this was going to be given just before the graduation from the program. And, you know, these people had gone through a year intensive stuff. And I didn't I didn't think that they needed more, you know, heavy duty content. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I figured, all right, number one, I'm going to tell them stories. And number two, I don't want to do the easy people that that that's just <laughs> well, it's just too easy. So I wanted to pick people that either nobody had ever heard of or they didn't know that they were Christians. Mm. Also, people who were not in the clergy, mm. or if they were in the clergy, they were known for things other than what we normally think of uh, pastors or priests doing. Mm, okay. So those, those were the parameters I set up. And when you look at Hebrews 11, the catalog of the heroes of the faith in, in scripture, mm. The first part of it is all about your household names, you know, mm -hmm. Noah and Abraham and Moses and such. But it ends with sort of the no-name people. Mm -hmm. We don't even 
actually know who specifically it was referring to. Yeah. And I wanted to honor that group um, in the in the talk. Um, so I did this, and it was completely different from what Chuck expected, of course. But he really liked it. Mm. And uh, he's, he, uh, he insisted that we include the talk with every class of Centurions, only the next time I did a different group, hmm. which kind of wow. confused him at first. Um, <laughs> but uh, then, uh, then it turned into a series of articles back in the days when Breakpoint used to publish articles. And then I started trying to hunt, you know, people were telling me you need to publish this as a book. And I thought that would be a good idea. So mm -hmm. I collected them together. And I approached three different major Christian publishers, and all of them turned it down. <laughs> One of them actually didn't even have the courtesy of replying. <clears throat> wow. Um, and you know, the the only answer I got was from the first one mm -hmm. that gave me a reason. They said nobody wants to read a book about people they've never heard of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, then I went to Canon Press, mentioned that I had this. They they did Slaying Leviathan. <clears throat> I mentioned that I had this, and they were like, "Man, that is right up the." The, that's the audience we want to reach. That's right up what we do. And so I sent them to them and they did some editing and I wrote some extra introductory material and things like that. They picked 32 out of the 60 some odd that I sent them. And that's the book. <clears throat> so how did you, how did you find these <clears throat> 60 something people to write about? Well, some of them were people I'd run into in in my work in history. I okay. Mean, you know, I'm a historian. Uh, others, I had to do a lot of legwork because I wanted to make sure that I had people from all over the world. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that there is an online dictionary of African Christians. Mm -hmm. um, there's a similar one for Chinese Christians. Mm. Um, doing a little bit of digging, uh, I was able to find uh, material. It was a little more difficult on Indian Christians mm. and Japanese Christians, um, and so you know this is this is what I did. Okay. Um, I just you know I, ju I just started hunting and digging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, in one case, I was actually in Mongolia um, doing some worldview research for a missions agency, and while I was there they referenced one of the Mongol queens that mm. was a Christian. Um, wow. And so I hunted, actually a very mm. important one. So I hunted mm -hmm. her down and included her. Wow. And so, so there were a lot of a lot of ways of sort of getting at it. Have you, like, has that journey kind of ended for you, or you still kind of, like, have one eye, like, always hunting and looking for more people? Oh, yeah, I'm, 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 I don't have as good an outlet. Breakpoint isn't doing the articles anymore. Um, but I have done some that have turned into breakpoint commentaries, for example. Okay. And I'm still sort of keeping one eye open for them because there may be a volume two coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause I mean, I imagine as time keeps going on, like there's still going to be heroes of the faith mm -hmm. that aren't like lifted high. But I mean, there are people in, I'm thinking about this guy who was in China and I can't remember the book I read. I'm terrible with remembering titles and stuff, but there was this Chinese guy that was in prison for his faith, and there's like a whole book written about his life, and um, it's pretty incredible. You know, I I could see him fitting into, um, being one of those people that you would write about one day. Yeah, the, there, there's an endless supply of them. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and looking at the table of contents and and the book itself, there's a lot of names I've never I've never heard of for sure, 
And, uh, and that's the point. And, and then for, for me, it's exciting. Like I think back to the Hebrews 11 and, and like, uh, Glenn, like you said, the, the, the only descriptions of them, not their names, but like they were sawn in two or they were put to death by the sword or mm. raised to life, you know, all these things, very anonymous, but, but they're there and, and, uh, to be able to honor those, uh, mm. those people. So I think about your title, 32 Christians who changed not the world, but their world. Right. And, uh, at, at bumper sticker faith here, sometimes we joke that, uh, a bumper sticker is, oh, I was just meant to change the world. And uh, we, we see that as like, no, you're, you're meant to maybe change your world, but your title like gets beneath that bumper sticker in a way and and points to the fact that no, um, your own little world is what you need to, um, to focus on. Right. So how, how intentional was that, that, Pronouns are important these days, I guess. But that oh, pronoun no, that there. Was, that was very intentional because the, the, the book's got several different goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is to alert people to the fact that um, Christianity as a worldview affects all of life. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter what field you're working in. Your Christian faith has an impact on mm. it. Amen. Mm-hmm. But having said that, very few of us are going to have an impact that's going to be felt globally. Mm-hmm. And if you think you've got to change the world, it's kind of overwhelming and it's easy to say, oh, I can never do that and to shut down. Mm-hmm. But you can change your world. You can change the lives of the people around you, your community, and so on. And that's a good and honoring thing to God to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's what the vast majority of us are actually called to do is to work to change our corner of God's creation, you know, our own, uh, our own community, mm-hmm. our own family. Even mm-hmm. I think some of the, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about this in uh, the great divorce. Um, the, the premise of the great divorce is that um, people from hell are given an opportunity to take a bus ride to heaven and they can stay there if they want and the thing is with one exception none of them want to stay (laughs) because the point is they want heaven on their own terms and that's the one thing that they can't have (laughs) but one of the great one of the great people of heaven that that comes uh it's a woman who is you know, she's got all kinds of animals surrounding her. It's almost like um, like uh, Snow White in, in Disney, where all the animals are, are, are her friends and all of this. And she comes down as this, this great, almost goddess figure. Now, take that with a grain of salt. It's mm-hmm. not really a goddess. But she comes, she comes across that way. And turns out she was a housewife. Mm-hmm. But she was one of the great people of heaven. Mm-hmm. Because of how she lived her life where she was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that I think is is kind of part of the point of what I'm trying to do mm-hmm. here is to indicate that that's that's what we need to do. And kind of mixing with another CS Lewis book um Abolition of Man I think it is. But he has a quote and I'll I'm not getting it right but he says that um a lot of people um have in the past people wanted to change um, themselves to fit reality, but these days the modern person wants to change reality in order to adapt to their desires, right? And right. and 
And that's visualized or portrayed really well in The Great Divorce when they realize that uh, in in heaven, the reality is such that uh, like the grass is <laughs> the grass is so real beyond real that um, th- that it hurts people's feet who aren't who aren't ready for it, who aren't solid enough. But heaven is real. You, you know, God's world is is real, and we're meant to not change reality to uh, for for the sake of our own desires, but rather to change our desires for the sake of reality. Right. So, like as you as you think of um, the thirty two. Um, maybe does someone come, come into mind, maybe a few of them do, whose reality was such that they, they couldn't change their world, but they had to um, change themselves or, or really go with it uh, and live out their faith in maybe dangerous ways or maybe uncomfortable ways uh, in order to uh, live out their faith. One of my favorite stories is um, a Japanese Christian by the name of Chune Sugihara. Hmm. And uh, Sugihara was a uh, a Christian, um, Orthodox actually, Russian Orthodox, who his father wanted him to go to medical school. So being a dutiful son in Japan, he took the medical school exams and didn't answer a single question because he didn't want to be a doctor. So he failed the <laughs> exam and couldn't get into medical school. So instead, he um, he joined the, the Japanese Foreign Service. And he was originally stationed in Harbin, which is in um, north uh, eastern China, very close to Russia. And he was so appalled by the way that the Japanese were occupying that region of Manchuria. Uh, he was so appalled by the way they were teaching or treating the Chinese that he left. You know, he he just he he resigned his position mm-hmm. and returned. Well, excuse me, he was still in the foreign service, so they sent him um, actually to Kaunas in Lithuania, and this is just before World War II. And when he arrived in Kaunas, he spent a lot of time integrating into the community, you know, talking to people, giving lectures on Japanese culture, things like that. Uh, he was really, in a lot of ways, almost an ideal ambassador. Mm-hmm. And one day he was in a specialty food store. And a little boy by the name of uh, Solomon or Sally Ganor came in. Um, his Sally's aunt uh, ran the store. And he was asking her for a couple of lets, uh, Lithuanian dollars, um, to go see a Laurel and Hardy movie that had opened. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that he had given all of his allowance to help Jewish refugees from the invasion of Poland. Hmm. So he didn't have any money. Wow. So he just he wanted to see the movie. And Sukihara um, heard heard this um, and said, "Well, here, let me let let me give you." And he was going to give him the money. And so he said, "I can't take that from you. I don't know you." And so Sukihara said, "Well, you can consider me your uncle." And so now, since we're relatives, you can take the money. <laughs> and Sally looked at his aunt, who was running the store, and she nodded, and he took the money. And then Sally said sort of spontaneously, well, if you're my uncle, you have to come to Hanukkah dinner. And Sugihara looked at the aunt. The aunt shrugged and nodded, and he said, okay, we'll be there. Me and his wife went to the Hanukkah dinner. Um, he talked about it for the rest of his life. He was particularly impressed by the desserts. <laughs> But while he was there, a man by the name of Rosenblatt 
um, who was a refugee from Poland, was also at that dinner. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about the horrors of the German invasion. His house had been blown up, his family killed, all of this kind of thing. And Sugihara heard this and knew that that was coming. Hmm. Um, so he wrote to Japan and said, I want to give Jews transit visas permission to travel through Japanese territory. And the reply came back, you can't do this unless they have a destination visa. We have to know where they're going. We can't just accept them into the, you know, into Japanese territory. Mm -hmm. And Sugihara tried to argue with them, but they were adamant on this. And he said to his wife, I may have to disobey the government, but I cannot disobey God. Mm -hmm. And he began writing transit visas for the Jews. Mm -hmm. He started in July, continued through think the end of September or something like that. And he, he just spent all day writing transit visas, each one of which would be good for a family. Um, he got, uh, his wife would bring him sandwiches and he just wrote and wrote and wrote, knowing that he was violating his express instructions from Japan. Mm -hmm. um, when he was pulled out of Kaunas because it was simply too dangerous to stay there any longer because the war was coming, um, he told the people, you know, he told the Jews who were there, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I've done everything I can for you. And one of them yelled, we'll never forget you. Hmm. Uh, according to some accounts, uh, he actually continued signing pieces of paper to allow people to write their own transit pieces and throwing them out the window of the train as he left. <laughs> he was restationed later into Central Europe, another country in Central Europe. And then after the war, he and his family spent 18 months in a Russian prisoner of war camp before they were repatriated to Japan. When he got to Japan, he went to the Foreign Service office and they told him that he was no longer employed, quote, because of that incident in Lithuania. Um, he made a living for a while selling light bulbs door to door, such as you could, I mm -hmm. mean, but eventually he got a job with a Japanese company and because he was fluent in Russian, uh, he was sent to Moscow as their trade rep. And so he saw his family something like once a year. Mm -hmm. He'd go back to, to see them. And all this while, he did not know if he had saved a single person. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out that um, the people he saved were busy trying to find him. The Japanese Foreign Office denied any knowledge of him. Uh, eventually, in the 1960s, a journalist tracked him down, managed to find him. And at that point, he found out that literally tens of thousands of people were alive because of what he did. Wow. And he had no wow. idea about any of this for over 20 years. Wow. And Man. his comment was, if even one person had survived, it would have been worth it. Um. They invited him to Israel to receive the Righteous Among the Gentiles Award. He couldn't do it. He was, he was old. He was sick. Um, his wife went and accepted it for him. And his children, well, his family were given uh, dual citizenship in Israel. His kids mm -hmm. all uh, graduated from Israeli universities. Wow. To this day, he's considered in a saint in the Russian Orthodox Church. Mm -hmm. And there's actually an icon to him. Man. Wow. Hmm. 
I want to go back to the title of the book because I had a comment. You know, I, I really love the fact of how you, you know, make it be known that it's not this idea of us changing the world, like the greater world, but just the world around us. You know, I think about um, several organizations I know that's like their main mission. Like we want to train people and equip people and let them go change the world. And it's like, that sounds great. You know, like that's cool language, you know, and you can get people to rally behind you, but it's not sexy. It's not great. It's not grandiose when you just think, what can I change within 10 feet of me? Mm -hmm. What can I change in a mile radius of where I live? How can I impact that? And what makes me think that if I can't impact this, call it a mile radius around me, what makes me think I can impact the whole rest of the world? Mm -hmm. You know, and to me... Go ahead. Yeah, I think that's the thinking that paralyzes people. Mm. You know, just helping my neighborhood is such a little thing. It isn't going to make any real difference. Why bother? Mm. You know, I and and that's that is bad thinking. God says, "Do not despise the day of small things." Mm. You know, you're you're exactly right. It, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I think about. Um, you know, the, there's a lot of fear when I talk to a lot of, you know, Christian brothers and sisters. They're kind of in fear of, you like, what are people going to think? How are people going to respond to me? And, you know, after reading a couple of the stories and then hearing you talk about this guy. Now, this guy, you know, the persecution he endured, you know, probably may not be as great as some people like being sawn in half or something. But when I read about this stuff, like something stirs up in me and it's like. I want to be like that guy. You know, I want to be chasing after God so much and being obedient to him that it costs me something. And I, I don't know if that's like right thinking. What, what, what do you think? Jesus tells us that we, if anyone would follow him, they have to take up their cross and follow him. Taking up your cross in Jesus's day, everyone understood what it meant. It meant you've got to walk to your own execution. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't just, you know, my arthritis is my cross to bear. Mm-hmm. This is there is a cost to following Jesus. James tells us friendship with the world is enmity with God. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus tells her tells us that in this world you will have trouble. Um, Paul tells us that anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. So these so, are the, promise, these are the promises mm-hmm. of scripture about our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, and, and I'm totally on board with that without a doubt. I'm just thinking like, you know, if I'm not, so the question that comes to my mind, if I'm not enduring persecution, if I'm not struggling, if there's no bad things befalling me as a result of my faith, then is my faith weak? Is it non-existent? Am I doing something wrong? Um, I think that the answer to that really lies in how you approach things. So, for example, um, if you're on social media, do you self-censor what you would say for fear of offending people? Hmm. Um do you avoid putting up things on, let's say, abortion because a lot of your friends are liberals and you don't want them to think badly mm. of you? 
if you're doing things like that, you're being unfaithful. Okay. Hmm. Um, because what it's showing is that you fear men more than you yeah. desire to speak the truth. Okay. I think that's the answer really <clears throat> revolves around that sort of thing. Uh, am I doing things? Or l- l- let's ask the question differently. Um, you, let's use the example of evangelism. Do I love my neighbor enough to tell him or her the truth, even if it costs their friendship? Mm-hmm. Do I care more about what the person thinks of me than I care about their soul? Those are the sorts of questions we need to be asking ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, be- because, um, you know, I think that's where we get ourselves in trouble. We think somehow that that the gospel means we have to live in such a way that everyone will think well of us. Mm. Uh, scripture tells us if, mm. if everybody thinks well mm. of you, you're in you're in deep trouble. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's there's a tension in that for me personally, because on one, I, like I totally agree with what you're saying, and so like I came out of prison gung ho, like unapologetically, like I'm sharing the gospel. And it's like if it steps on your toes if it smacks you upside the head and you got a head smacked and toes stomped on <laughs> but what i found is that my method was off because instead of me trying to be loving gentle and kind i was just relaying information and we know the gospel's offensive mm-hmm. right and so i don't need to be offensive because it's offensive already mm-hmm. and so there's always that tension between me. So to use the the neighbor illustration you use, like now I'm more so let me befriend my neighbor. Let me get to know my neighbor so we can have gospel conversations. But you have another side of people that will say, well, time is of an essence. Mm -hmm. And while you're befriending them and getting to know them and building relationships so that you can have the conversation, you haven't shared the gospel and now what if something happens and they're dead or they move away? You missed an opportunity. So there's a tension in me and I want to be Holy Spirit led, you know, in everything mm-hmm. I do. Right. And I think we can't put a time, a date, a place on the Holy Spirit's prompting and what is urging us to do. But I always feel like the tension of, OK, are we friends enough now that we can have that conversation? And it's always in the back of my mind. And maybe that's the Holy Spirit saying now is the time mm-hmm. now. Share right. When, when you look at the Gospels, um, when Jesus gives instructions to the 12 and then the 70, um, descends them out on a preaching mission, what he tells them is, you know, when you come to a village, find a person of peace, stay with them, don't move from house to house, eat what's put in front of you. Then it says, in the village, eat what's put in front of you. Okay, why is it repeated? Mm. In that culture, when you eat with somebody, it establishes a relationship. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's a relationship that is almost unbreakable. There's that eating was a very, very important thing, sharing a meal with them. So what it's saying is find someone in the village, establish a relationship with them. Then they will introduce you to the rest of the village, eat with them, establish a relationship with them there. Mm -hmm. And that's the context in Mm -hmm. which you 
heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, and tell them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Mm. So the relationship side is important. Mm. There is a there is a balance point to be hit here. Um, I, I I very much when I first became a Christian, I was very much the try to shove this down everybody's throats that I can. Mm. Um, then I backed off of that way too far. Mm. You know, when I realized that I was alienating people, not not really doing anything, it took several years before I got to that point. And again, so I understand the tension between mm. the two. That's very real. Mm-hmm. Um, an example of, of uh, approach number one mm-hmm. from the book is actually a secondary character in the book, King Olaf I of Norway. Mm. When Olaf, he was a Viking king, but he became a Christian, first Christian king of Norway. And he approached Christianity much like a Viking, Mm. (laughs) um, which is to say that um, he informed you that you were going to become a Christian. And if you didn't want to, he would uh, imprison you, torture you, execute you, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, He actually blockaded the island of Iceland uh, to force them to accept Christianity in the island. Wow. (laughs) That is, that is sort of, that's not the way to do it. Yeah. It's extreme. (laughs) Okay. But, but, you know, so, so um, yeah, there's ample historical examples of that. But we also have ample historical examples of the other extreme where, well, let me give you a personal example. The, the church I was in in Connecticut was part of the uh, United Church of Christ, the UCC, mm-hmm. um, which is the most liberal denomination mm-hmm. in the country. Although we were an evangelical congregation within it, but we decided we couldn't continue that association and they sent their top people to us to try to convince us to stay because we were one of the largest churches in the in new england Mm -hmm. for the ucc and they told us the story of uh, ucc missionaries in india who built you know they built a hospital and they were working with the people for years you know so they construct this hospital and once the hospital was constructed the a group of hindus a large you know crowd of hindus came carrying a cross to them to put up on the hospital. And they said, we don't know what this means, but we know that it's important to you. So we thought we would give you the cross. And they thought of this as as a great example of spreading the gospel. After years of work, they didn't know what the cross meant. Yeah, wow, that's incredible. Yeah, so that that's the other extreme. Yeah, yeah. And there is a balance point between the two. day today it's a day of um toppling statues canceling people from the past and in one sense i see uh, your book as like flying in the face of that like let's go back into the past and let's uh, so to speak erect 32 statues of people whose lives we need to look at and and to consider uh, I'm sure they were they were not all perfect people, right? There's probably some skeletons in all their all their closets. Not a, not a one of them. 
So how, how intentional was that, um, or that mindset, uh, to you to, um, want to show people, uh, and celebrate, um, sinners from the past and, um, and bring their stories to us and how much today in our culture, do we need that? Yeah, I, I wasn't thinking so much in terms of that. My, my point, you know, when Paul tells you, um, follow me as I follow Christ, mm-hmm. um, he, he is holding himself up as an example, not in his sin, but in the degree that he is following Christ. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to highlight what following Christ looks yeah. like. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are, um, the best example, the guy in the book who is probably my personal hero is a guy by the name of William Carey. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carey was a, uh, a cobbler, a shoemaker by trade, um, incredibly talented linguist, really bright, you know, all kind. But then he became a, a preacher, uh, believed God was calling him to India, um, overcame resistance in his own denomination to do that, and then um, began missions work in India. And while he was in India, he did a mind-numbing range of things to advance the gospel. Uh, and, and not only to advance the gospel, but to change Indian culture. Um, in really some pretty amazing ways. Uh, I won't go through the whole list here because it's not not really relevant to your question immediately, but it's definitely worth looking mm-hmm. at this guy's career. It's, it's stunning. And the range of things he did is why I would sort of put him in the category of my hero. Mm-hmm. But in terms of his family life, he was an utter failure. Mm-hmm. Um, his wife, his first wife, um, didn't want to go to India. She ended up having a nervous breakdown there. And he ended, he, to his credit, he ended up taking care of her while she was invalided, but then she ended up dying. Mm-hmm. Um, he married someone else afterwards, and they had a few children. But <clears throat> according to people who came to India afterwards, he completely ignored raising and discipling his own kids, mm-hmm. which to me is sort of your first responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um and yet he was an utter failure in that area. Um, that, that's probably the most ex- outstanding yeah. example of the kind of thing that you're talking about here. God used them in amazing ways, yeah. but all of these people with feet of clay, every one of them is is a, a flawed sinner. So I, it's, I don't know, Sam, when you plan on maybe switching gears, but I got a, I got a question that's been burning for probably about, I don't know, a week or 10 days yeah. now. So... I want to make sure I fit it in where it no, needs go, to be go. fit in. <clears throat> so on Facebook, there's a guy I'm friends with. I don't know him. He doesn't know me. He just came out with a commentary. And, you know, this this thought just came to me not long ago to ask you this question because I remembered you saying, you know, you're a church historian. <clears throat> Excuse me. His commentary is all about well, I want to say all about a big part of it is about women in the Bible and specifically New Testament women in the Bible. And so he has come up with some things that I've never heard of. I'm not a New Testament scholar. I'm not a church historian. I'm none of those things. I like the Bible. I like reading it. I want to learn more of it. But he made a really big case and I'm not going to have a lot of information to give you, but I'm just going to be curious to hear your thoughts about Junia in the mm-hmm. new Testament. And he, he has this whole 
theory, or I wouldn't say he wouldn't call it a theory. He would call it facts that somehow he has researched and found that, that she not only was an apostle, but she was a church planter and like would almost be the equivalent of like Paul and things that he mentioned, like one, they're not even in the Bible. Like I know that for a fact. And so I'm kind of like, well, where does one get this other information and this guy, when you look at other writings and things, is all about women, 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 women. Mm-hmm. And so he's got a thing for women, not like a thing thing, but like a <laughs> wanting to make sure that they're, I guess, respected and promoted and, and so on and so forth. So I'm just curious, just from your studies that you've done, and maybe it's been very little in this in this area, but whatever you have, like, what have you discovered about Things like this where people write about uh, women of the Bible, specifically New Testament women and their role in church planting and in the kingdom of God during their era. Yeah, um, what it says about Junia, and by the way, there are some people who want to translate a Junius, making it masculine. Making a man, yep. Which yep. is, no, it doesn't work. There is no record of a name Junius. It's Junia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. So definitely she is a woman, and she's described as being, quote, great among the apostles or possibly highly thought of by the apostles. Mm -hmm. So how do you translate that? I think great among is probably better than, you know, when you look at the Greek, I think that's that's the the argument leans heavily in that direction. But people don't want to translate it that way because then it implies that she's an apostle. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, here's the first thing you need to realize. The word apostle is ambiguous. Mm-hmm. You have capital A apostles like the 12 <clears throat> or Paul, mm-hmm. but the word apostle only means an emissary. It, 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 it's just a special messenger, an emissary. And it was a word that was used to describe people in a non-technical sense. So... Describing her as an apostle doesn't mean she has apostolic authority as we usually think of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, which is well anyway. So so we have that. Um, a lot of people think that an apostle in the early church it's a it's a generic term for a church planter. Mm, yeah, that may in fact be correct, mm-hmm. but the word itself has, I think, when you look at its contemporary usage, it's got a broader semantic range than that. It just mm-hmm. simply means someone who is sent as 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 almost like an ambassador. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the case we don't have enough information to actually know exactly what Junia did. What we do know is that she was an important figure in the churches. And that's what we see in the New Testament. There are a number of women who do play important roles in the churches. Um, The precise nature of those roles is a bit up for grabs. Mm. Um, So what we have to do, I think, is look at the explicit teaching that we have about the role of women um and to summarize that in the new testament we have instructions for men as elders and men and women as deacons they kind of play fast and loose with the translation there sometimes where um in the qualifications for deacons they'll translate it as and their and the wives 
mm-hmm. not and the women. It's really and the women. Mm-hmm. How do I know that? There are qualifications for female deacons, but not for female elders. Mm-hmm. If it were wives, why would there be qualifications for deacons' wives, but not elders' wives? Mm-hmm. Okay. So we know they performed roles as deacons. We have external sources from the early second century. Pliny the Younger sent a letter to Trajan where he referred to two women who are called deaconesses in the churches. Mm -hmm. Uh, Phoebe is described as a deacon. The Mm -hmm. problem is, again, the word deacon is a bit ambiguous. It can simply mean a servant or a minister. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, we do know that there were women employed by the churches. This is the whole point about the teaching about keeping widows on the rolls. Mm -hmm. What that means is that the church is supporting them. Mm -hmm. Um, But they have jobs that they're supposed to do within the church. You know, so so the evidence in the New Testament is, and in the early church, is a little bit ambiguous um, in a lot of ways. But I would say that where it leads is that in the first century, we have women functioning as deacons, we have men functioning as deacons, but we do not have women functioning as elders. I think, I, I don't see how you can land other than that if you're paying close attention to the text. Mm. Now, having said that, there's another side to this where it says women should keep silent in the churches and so on. I don't think that we can take that as an absolute prohibition mm. uh, of women speaking, because Paul in in First Corinthians, Paul also talks about how women should prophesy. Mm, yeah. So uh, prophecy in Scripture is typically done in the context of the congregation um, in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Not always, but frequently. And it's kind of hard to square how a woman can prophesy, that is, speak for God, if they're not, and at the same time say mm-hmm. they can't speak in the service. Mm-hmm. Um, it's worth noting that the two places where we run into prohibitions of women speaking are in 1 Corinthians and Timothy, Uh, who was in Ephesus. Hmm. And the thing about both of those cities is they were religiously dominated by um, female cults. Uh, Aphrodite, the goddess of sex, they usually translated love, it's actually Mm. the goddess of sex Mm. in Corinth. And Artemis, who is oddly enough a combination of the virgin huntress of Greek mythology, but with the local um, great mother goddess, of um of asia minor and what we know in both of these is that the priestesses were frequently also prostitutes and they were loud and they were aggressive and they were obnoxious Mm. Um, in ephesus in particular they claimed that women were superior to men because as the great mother goddess shows women preceded men so when paul says uh excuse me man was formed first Mm then woman, mm-hmm. he is responding directly, mm. it seems to me, to the claims that are being made wow. by the Artemis cult in the city where Timothy was working. Mm. So when you take all of that into account, I think that women have uh, biblically more freedom to act in the church services uh, to prophesy and such than um then the really hardcore guys will say, but at the same time, 
Um, they do not have authority as elders or things like that, but but there is there is a you know there's grounds for them to take other kinds of leadership roles and to uh, participate uh, more actively mm -hmm. in the services rather than sitting with their mouths shut. Mm. And um, in yeah. um, in First Timothy, when um, Paul is speaking like that, there's a lot of connections to Adam and Eve in the garden in Paul's letter to Timothy, and it it's mm -hmm. almost as if he's saying. You know, Adam uh, or Timothy or listener, you men dropped the ball in the garden. We should have spoken up in and based on the knowledge that God had given to us, the prohibition not to eat from this tree. But you dropped the ball, and so he's almost indirectly, directly speaking to men too with that um, the prohibition against you know women speaking, mm. calling us to come and defend you know right doctrine and and so mm. forth, mm. perhaps. Yeah, I think I think there's something of that in there. Now, I got to tell you, what I just said is my own. I don't know anybody else who argues what mm -hmm. I just said about Corinth and Ephesus. So that's kind of idiosyncratic. Um, mm -hmm. But it seems to me that that when you take into account the immediate context in which those letters were were delivered, um, you have to at least take that into consideration. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, so. For sure. So, oh, that's good. Um, Thanks for sharing that. So I want to yeah. shift gears now uh, in a little bit and um, f and look at our present situation um, and, and like using your book and using you as a historian uh, in a sense with your knowledge of the past, but to look at the present situation and then our future situation uh, in the church um, is, as well. So like I guess a uh, first question is, like while there's nothing new under the sun, t today's world is considerably different from the world in the past. Um, and what similarities, I guess, do you see with um, w with where the church is today, so that we can learn from that? But then, what differences do we face today? And uh, we're going to get into maybe more discussion about how to navigate those differences. But what are some of the similarities? And then what are the, uh, I guess, market differences that we have today in the church? Yeah, I, I would say that we we are in a situation that isn't completely unprecedented in one sense, but is in another. We're, we're facing a situation where Christianity has become increasingly marginalized and people seem to, people think they know what Christianity is they think that it, you know, they've got all kinds of misconceptions about what it is. And as a result, it's very, very difficult, I think, to evangelize clearly in this culture because people already think they know what, mm -hmm. know what Christianity is about and have rejected it. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, the church, in order to respond to this, has committed itself largely to compromising with the culture. You know, mm -hmm. if we don't take a stand against um, uh, women in ministry, or if we don't take a stand against um, uh, you know, uh, gay marriage, if we don't take a stand against now trans stuff, if we actually look at direct, I have Christian friends who are arguing that we should just sort of you know, recognize that drag queens are simply performers and that drag queen story hour is not a problem. Mm -hmm. You know, if we just simply acquiesce with the insanity in the culture, then we will be able to spread the gospel. Mm. 
But what is left for us to tell people? If we accept everything that's in the culture, what are we going to call them to repent from? Mm, amen. Amen. Um, you know, so so we're in a situation where the church is um, increasingly severely compromised by the culture. And I think that there are reasons for that having to do with some flaws within evangelicalism. Um, but, uh, you know, so we've got that problem. And at the same time, on the other side, we have uh, the culture constantly saying that, you know, the loving thing to do, you know, you Christians are all about love. The loving thing to do is to just simply accept what we're telling you. Mm-hmm. Well, no, the loving thing to do is to stand on the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so we're in kind of an unprecedented situation in that we've got a culture that is de-Christianizing that still seems to think that it knows what Christianity is. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that before. Wow. Um, on the other hand, there are situations where there has been a Christian culture that's then been taken over by a non-Christian culture. Um, I'm thinking of areas that have fallen under the control of Islam. Um, mm-hmm. And it's worth noting that in even in the midst of persecution and oppression and things like that, the church has hung on into these areas for over a thousand years now at least in some of them. In others, Christianity was completely exterminated. There were a lot of Christian communities all through Central Asia. They disappeared in the 14th century. They were exterminated. So there's there's sort of, you know, living in a hostile culture is possible, but there's no guarantee of success at it. Mm-hmm. Um, success in the sense of survival. Um, on the other hand, we can look at England. England in the 18th century was really corrupt. I mean, something like one in four women in London uh, made their living as prostitutes or supplemented their income by, uh, by prostitution. Um, there's all kinds of other things that are just disastrous um, morally and culturally in England in the period. And while it was officially a Christian country, uh, being a Christian there meant being baptized as a baby, being confirmed as a young person, getting married in the church, having your kids baptized, and when you die, being buried in the churchyard. Oh, and go to church on Sunday. That was all Christianity was for the vast majority of people in England. And yet, there were people who weren't satisfied with this. Um, the Methodist societies um, that grew out of the uh, the evangelical revival in Britain, they were really at the forefront of this, but others as well, who said, no, this is not what Christianity is. And who took seriously the implications of the gospel for culture, as well as for personal salvation. And so these small societies, a small group of people generally despised by the larger culture, went to work and worked hard in the culture. And in the end, they won. They transformed Britain. Um, So you've got this country that is at the brink, actually quite possibly the brink of a revolution like you see in France, an anti-Christian revolution, Um, a, a really severely watered down cultural Christianity and all of that. And yet these groups, by acting out faithfully, regardless of what the larger culture thought of them, were salt and light for Britain and transformed the society. That's the hope. Mm. Mm. So as you have, like, 
if I imagine you as a as a football coach and uh, you have your team uh, called the church in the uh, in, in a huddle or maybe it's halftime, based on your knowledge of church history and all that the has transpired in the game, you know, so to speak, uh, up until now, what would you, what charge would you give the church, uh, today, um, as we move forward? Like what kinds of, what kinds of players, whether they're lay players or pastor players, clergy or, or regular folk, um, what kind of players do we need in the game? What kind of, um, um, I guess moves or plays do we need to have, uh, what's your charge to the church? Well, first of all, my charge to the pastors is to reread Ephesians 4 and note that your job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Mm. Mm. Amen. My second charge to the players is mm. your job is to do the work of ministry. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, that's Ephesians 4. Mm-hmm. Um, along with that, what I would what I would say is we need to get back to basics and pay attention to blocking and tackling. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a matter of going back to the Gospels, studying Jesus, studying what Jesus did, studying what he told his disciples to do and start doing it. Mm-hmm. Pretty simple. Um, you know, it's it, it's it, you know, the you know, the, the thing I said before about, you know, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, um, cleanse lepers. Uh, and and it, it, interestingly enough, in, in one of the. Um, in in the instructions to the 70 that precedes telling them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand Hmm. so what you see there is a system of show and tell Hmm. show them what the kingdom looks like tell them about it Hmm. Hmm. so what we need to do is to get back to blocking and tackling Hmm. we need to show the world what the kingdom looks like we need to get back to basics what is it that the church should be doing you know, the church in Jerusalem devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, which included, by the way, sharing with others who were in need. Um, the breaking of bread, which actually refers to communion primarily, um, and the prayers, which refers to worship. Mm-hmm. We need to get back to focusing on those things. We need to be a living community that demonstrates an alternative to what the world looks like. Yeah. And we need, and, you know, just living out the Christian life faithfully, <clears throat> truth and love. Amen. So what's what's driving you? Uh, like your um, your book Slaying Leviathan came out at a very I think critical time, and uh, just going through that, your um, amazing knowledge of history and putting it, analyzing it, but then synthesizing it as well, and then this new book about thirty two Christians who changed uh, their world. And your involvement on the podcast and um, all these things, but what's what's driving you as uh, as a Christian? Uh, I would not say I'm being driven. I would say I'm doing my job. Hmm. You know, God's calling to me, God's gifting to me involves teaching, and. Whenever I find a need in the church, I ask myself, what can, is there any way, is this part of my brief? Is there anything I can do to contribute in this area? 
and so you know that's that's more or less how how I work and it it for me it's a question of of calling this is what this is what God created me to be doing mm-hmm. and so it's my job to be about to go about doing it mm-hmm. man I, I think it's great I mean as we kind of come to the end of our time it's, it's been a blessing for me I definitely want to check out the podcast because I want to hear yeah. I want to hear more from our brother sunshine man he got a um got a got a gift yeah. brother you got a gift and it's yeah. a blessing to see and hear you using that gift and saying hey it's not a charge it's a job like mm-hmm. the Lord has given me this gift and I'm using this gift to help other people know him and to walk with him according to um, his precepts and his purposes, Lord. So if there's one last thing you'd like to leave our listeners with, Glenn, what, what would it be? A, a last word, if you will, if you have one. Yeah, this actually isn't in the book, but this is something I learned from one of my uh, professors when I was working on my doctorate. There's an island off Ireland called Skellig Michael. Um, it's actually where they put Luke Skywalker in the okay. the, the movie, yeah. you know, the, the place with all the stone huts and things mm-hmm. like that. This was a monastery founded by the Irish Irish monks back in the probably 6th, 7th century. I don't remember the exact date. But on the west side of the island, now this is, in, this is Western Ireland, uh, Ireland. It's facing the North Atlantic. On the western side of the island, there is a cliff. And although it took a long while for people to discover this, they found out that at the top of this cliff was one of these little beehive huts that the Irish monks lived in, and a little garden area. And it turns out that what they would do is they would have one monk, it seems, who would, because it's small, I mean, there would be one monk who would go up and live in this hut. Now, The reason why this is interesting is there's a sheer cliff face dropping into the North Atlantic. (laughs) Atlantic is known for its violence. But here's the thing. When the winds blow in from the west and you've got a storm coming at this point, the geography is such that the winds blow in, they hit the cliff, and they're channeled up over the top so that there is a bubble of calm air at the top, which is where this beehive hut is located. So in the midst of a storm, and actually the more violent the storm in a lot of ways, the calmer the air at that place, at Mm. that particular point. And for the Irish monks, this was a picture of the church in the world. It is subject to the full fury of the attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil, Mm. but it is protected by nothing but the hand of God. Mm. And this is... I think in a lot of ways, very typical of the way the Irish thought on a whole lot of different levels. Yeah. There's sort of a strong poetic streak in the people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a useful way of looking at, at our position. When we look at the world around us, it's really easy to say everything's falling apart and to move to despair mm-hmm. um, or hopelessness or whatever. But despair is a sin mm-hmm. because it denies God's sovereignty and God's goodness. Mm-hmm. So I think that that this example of this this hut on this this cliff face on Skellig Michael um, is a good way for us to think about ourselves and the church and the world and to recognize that no matter how bad things look, no matter how much is being thrown against us, we are ultimately protected by the hand of God. Mm. And 
we are really bulletproof until we've completed the things that he has for us. Amen. Amen. That's a good last word. Sam. I want to say check out uh, Every Square Inch. Uh, That's uh, Dr. Glenn Sunshine's uh, website. Is it everysquareinch.org or .com? E-square-inch. Okay, E-square-inch. And you can um, um, see more. There's good media links and videos and writings and that. Um, That's all I got. Yeah, I would say, man, I see why you love this guy. Yeah, he's... Like, I can't wait to get subscribed to the podcast. Yeah, the podcast. Theology yeah. podcast. I can't wait to subscribe to that and start listening. So it's been an honor and a blessing meeting you, um, my brother Glenn. And so we just pray that um, you have a continued successful time in teaching and sharing the word of God with mm-hmm. others. We wish you well. And perhaps maybe we may tap you and have you come on again because I got some more questions for you <laughs> that um, we didn't yeah. have time for today. So thank you very much. I'd love to be back. Thank you for having me. Cool. All right. Well, man, thank you for joining us for another episode of Bumper Sticker Faith. Um, As always, if you've got anything out of this and has made you um, feel great or feel alive or some information you want to pass along, share this with other people. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you want to give us some feedback or you have any questions, you can email us at bumperstickerfaith at gmail.com. So thank you guys very much. Have a great day and don't go stepping in no. Yes. Peace.